Hello and welcome to the first episode of the Main Polls Podcast. And if you haven't listened to the show before, what we're doing is taking a closer look at Maine's policy and politics and trying to really understand what's going on with some of these things that are going on all around us at all times. And for today's show, we're going to start with a closer look at Sarah Gideon and her record at the state legislature. I I have a few things I want to cover for sure, and seeing how much time that takes, we may expand out and see where we end up. So, Sarah Gideon is the current speaker of the Maine House of Representatives. She was first elected as Freeport's representative in 2012. She's been re-elected three times and has served as House Speaker since 2016. She's up for re-election this November, except that she decided to join the big leagues and is running for one of Maine's Senate seats. Gideon is running against Independent Max Lynn, Independent Lisa Savage, and of course the Republican incumbent Susan Collins. And also, this will be the first time ranked choice voting will be used to elect a U.S. Senator, which is adding a whole other element to the election. But today we're going to start with a focus on Sarah and her record in the state legislature. What I've done is pulled a list of every bill she's ever sponsored. So we're going to cover a few of them, and we'll also cover a few that she co-sponsored, um, and I've also got some of the testimony that she's provided uh, committee meetings on some of these bills that she sponsored and co-sponsored. So hopefully with all these together, we'll be able to get a good idea about who she is as a legislator. All right, so most of the bills that she put forward were considered sentiment bills, which are just uh, her putting forth that the legislature recognized like a, uh, someone that had just recently become an Eagle Scout or uh, you know a World War II veteran in, in one of the communities, something like that. Mo- more than half, it looks like, more than half of the bills that she put in while her time at the legislature were those. Now, the other thing she has here, I've just sort of my own way to wrap my head around it, divided up into a few different categories. And so we'll probably just work our way through some of these categories to kind of see what she's about. And the categories I've got, uh, I've got worked up for this are, just so you kind of can see where we're going here, uh, environment and energy would be one. Uh, healthcare and safety stuff is another one. Uh, property tax, voter reg- uh, registration, and the first one we're going to start with, I just kind of called wine, but I mean it's really just what her first bill was that she put forth when uh, she was first elected, and what it was about. It was called an act to create jobs and increase consumer wine choice. Now, what does that mean? Well. The summary of the bill uh, says this bill allows a person who is not a retailer or wholesaler licensed to sell wine or malt liquor in the state to auction fine and rare wines from a private collection to private collectors, retailers, and wholesalers under certain conditions. Okay, what does that mean? It means that if you were a collector of fine and rare wines, uh, it would be possible for you in the state of Maine to get a license that would allow you to auction off uh, bottles 
within your collection and the way it would have been set up was that like the collector would actually have to be the way I'm reading it is only the collector would have actually had to be the like auction license holder and they would have only been able to sell like up to 12 bottles per year with that with that license and I actually do have the testimony that she provided, which basically just the transcript of what she said to the committee meeting, uh, to the committee that was considering whether or not you know they would go through with this law and put it out to the uh, put it out to the uh, legislature for approval or not. And basically, what she says is that there was this you know a citizen that came up. And you know, pitched this idea to her, and you know, she you know said it's you know as a legislator, it's her job to put it forward and all that. Um, she does say the guy's name, but that's not really important. He he's a long. Let me just read it here. Uh, he's has long been a wine collector. He, like many others in Maine, collects wines that are created from small harvests in limited batches. Wines that he is able to procure by waiting years on a wait list with exclusive wineries. Wines that have wines that he has bought long ago, showing great patience while they age until they are "quote unquote" just right. It is quite honestly an investment. That all sounds good, but for one thing, under current Maine law, such a collector cannot legally sell their wine in Maine. I come before you today so that we can answer together these two simple questions. How do we allow for those collectors to sell the wine they have legally purchased? How do we honor a main entrepreneur's request to invest in the main economy? Uh, she goes on to talk about how this was this is actually the second time they've tried to put this bill up. Uh, apparently last time they hit quite a bit of resistance from the state's beer and wine wholesalers and she talks about how this you know this new bill hopefully addresses some of those issues and she finishes up with you know a uh, small business entrepreneurial uh, attitude towards the entire thing um let me get you know i can read it here it, it brings in new tax revenue it creates opportunity not just in the new business but in the multiplier effect, as ancillary jobs are created or enhanced, uh, jobs like wine appraisal, auctioneers, wine transportation, insurance, wine storage, event management, catalog design and printing, construction of wine cellars, and the increased sale of hotel rooms and meals. So she was really trying to sell some, you know, new micro industry that could, you know, spring from this uh but i don't think the committee was really seeing it it doesn't even look like it got out of committee all right let's turn to some of those categories i was describing earlier the first one we can dig into is environment and energy uh one of the first bills in this category i came across was put up the same around the same time as the wine bill actually that she was fighting for um this one was also in 2015, an act to amend the laws governing wind energy development permitting. Oof. So what was this one about? Well, I, I pulled both the bill and the testimony she put uh, forward for the committee that was uh, considering the bill. And apparently, 
what happened was that in 2008, according to the testimony she, according to the testimony she gave the committee, uh, quote, in 2008, when Maine adopted the Wind Energy Act, its architects created something named the Expediated Permitting Area. Its purpose was to direct development to certain parts of the state. She goes on to explain that uh, because the way we created this expedited permitting area does not allow for landowners or residents to remove their property from the area, this bill seeks to change that and to set up a process where landowners can remove themselves. So apparently this is what happened is that when there was the big push to bring wind into Maine, which I guess is still happening, but when it first started in uh, around 2008, apparently, um, one of the land use uh, approaches the state used was to designate areas that they would help get expediated uh, approval. And apparently they didn't think to actually work in what the landowners thought of this or whether or not they could or couldn't be within that designation it just sort of happened on a state uh, level and this bill that uh, Sarah Gideon put forward tried to stop that and so this legislation you know specifically tried to set up a or you know did set up actually it looks like this one passed uh, did set up you know a way for landowners to opt out of you know being automatically included in these you know, these wind turbine, you know, zoning, special zoning areas. She actually did co-sponsor a number of other bills and provided committee testimony on some of those. For example, in 2018, she co-sponsored and testified in support of LD 1741. This bill would have established a commission to study economic, environmental, and energy benefits of energy storage to the main electricity industry. So a commission made up of state legislators and representatives from Maine's energy sector, folks from hydroelectric, the biomass industry, CMP obviously, someone from academia, a conservation group, a couple private energy storage businesses, and probably a few others, but you get the idea. And during the committee meeting, in addition to Gideon speaking, more than a dozen other people testified too. Most of them are representatives from Maine's energy sector many that may have ended up on the commission had the bill passed but the committee split on its recommendation to pass it or not and it doesn't look like they even bothered to take a vote on it on the so it died when the legislative session ended she was a strong supporter of an act to limit greenhouse gas pollution and effectively use Maine's natural resources this was ld 797 according to her testimony this bill sets an ambitious yet attainable goal of an 80% net reduction below 1990 levels by the year 2050. Okay, so let's turn to the healthcare and safety stuff. So a few years back, some of you may recall that there was a ongoing debate within the legislature about the use of Narcan. Um, a lot of this debate was happening when Paul LePage was still the governor. He was against its use. Uh, she was one of the ones, or she was the one that wrote the initial bill that tried to make it legal in the state. Uh, if you don't remember what Narcan is, it's just a, it's a drug that can be administered if you're having an overdose 
and uh, from opiates specifically, I believe. And LePage was against it because he saw it as uh, as something that would um, just further encourage drug abuse. But the original bill itself that was dealing with the issue uh, was presented by Gideon, let's see, late 2013, early 2014. It was an act to address preventable deaths from drug uh, overdose. And to just read the summary, this bill authorizes the prescription, possession, and administration of opioid antagonists under certain circumstances and provides criminal and civil immunities for such prescription, possession, and administration. And how this law worked is that you need to get a prescription from a healthcare professional and they can prescribe it to anyone that may be at risk of experiencing an opioid uh, overdose or a family member of someone that may experience an opioid overdose, uh, a friend that might be able to be in assistance, really anyone that might be in a scenario where they're going to uh, potentially have to help someone that has a, uh, you know, an opioid overdose. <clears throat> now, the final language in that bill was actually a little bit of a compromise for Sarah. She had initially wanted it to be uh, Narcan to be available over the counter, so you wouldn't necessarily need a prescription from a, a healthcare professional. And so, you know, that got taken out of the uh, bill during negotiations, I think, pretty early on. But she didn't drop it. Uh, uh, by 20, at least by 2016, she was pushing uh, LD1547. And that's exactly what this bill did. It was just going to make it so you could then get Narcan over the counter. So anyone could go in and, you know, they wouldn't even really ask questions. It would, you know, you'd be able to buy it. And I don't think she was actually the sponsor of this particular bill, but she was most definitely a co-sponsor. And she spoke at the committee meeting that was reviewing it. Uh, and, you know, as the original author of the original bill, you know, having her there talking about why this change would be necessary would have carried some weight. But this was still under LePage's administration. So yeah, this was 2016. So it doesn't look like it got through um, and because she was back at it arguing for the same thing in 2018 this one looked like she had actually uh, sponsored this one it was uh, LD1892 and this bill passed in uh, May 2nd 2018 and they actually needed it to override a governor's veto to do it. So LePage fought this one right to the very end. Uh, another bill that she supported uh, pretty publicly and testified for, uh, this was in 2019, uh, resolved to ensure access to opioid addiction treatment. This was LD1630. And this was a bill looking for more funding uh, for methadone treatment, specifically what Maine Care was covering for methadone treatment reimbursement. And Gideon included some math on her, her testimony. Um, I'll, I'll just read it rather than try to explain it. In 1995, we set the rate, which covers medication, counseling, drug testing, and examinations at $80 a week. I'm um, assuming that's $80 a week per patient. 
Uh, then in 2010, we reduced it to $72, and then again we reduced it to $60, recognizing the strain this was causing. In 2017, we passed bipartisan legislation allowing the reimbursement rate for methadone treatment to increase from $60 per week rate. In November 2018, the state Medicaid program actually instituted an increase, increasing the rate to about $81 per week. Now, let's put that into perspective. If inflation were to be taken into account, the rate today should be $126 per week. Again, as a reminder, we are at $81. This bill, LD1630, directs the Department of Health and Human Services to set the floor for the main care reimbursement rate paid to outpatient opioid treatment providers at $110 per week. This rate is still well below cost, but moves us much closer to where we should be. So that was what that bill was about. It was really just to get more funding for a program that was looks like was woefully underfunded uh, in the first place. She specifically also mentions uh, counties like York County, the Western Mountains, Midcoast, and Northern Maine as places that haven't had clinics open in 10 years. And just kind of pointing at the fact that uh, the amount of money that they're, you know, paying this program isn't enough to keep it operating within the private market. And so places that need it the most uh, have the, you know, least ability to get to it, travel to it. And so I think part of this was, you know, to try to encourage, you know, possibly some other treatment facilities to open up. Now, once the 129th session started, which is just 2019 until it's the currently active one as well. Once that session started, uh, LePage was out, Mills was in, we started seeing a lot more activity on some pretty specific health care coverage uh, policy issues. And remember too, at this point, Sarah Gideon is Speaker of the House and she had been for uh, not just this session, but I think at least the session prior to this as well. So even though she's not necessarily uh, sponsoring a lot of these bills, she did co-sponsor a number of them and provided committee testimony explaining why she agreed with the proposed bill. An example of this would be LD1, an act to protect health care coverage for Maine families. It was passed in 2019, uh, and what this did, this was a bill that came up um, when it looked like the courts were going to strike down certain parts of the Affordable Care Act, the, uh, the Obamacare. And specifically, they're worried about pre-existing conditions, um, being able to stay on your insurance uh, as a, like 26, up until you're 26 years old, staying on your parents' insurance, uh, those sorts of things. And what this law did was just codify those in a state law. So in case it fell apart on the federal level, uh, it would it wouldn't matter as much. The states had the state would already have uh, taken steps to deal with that. And if I remember right, I, I think a lot of states were doing this at that point, um, just sort of setting a net under the uh, federal guidelines that may or may not hold. Uh, in her testimony to the committee pushing for this, she wrote that it was going to include coverage of essential health benefits. Uh, individuals with pre-existing conditions and young adults who wish to remain on their parents' health plan until the age of 26. The bill would also prevent insurance companies from charging seniors uh, much higher premiums. 
Now, another bill that she fully supported that's in the same vein as that one is an act to enact the Made for Maine Health Coverage Act and improve health choices in Maine. And this bill, it basically establishes state policies that mimic the Affordable Care Act. And she supported this bill for the same reason she supported the other one, because of the uncertainties happening around health care at the federal level. And so this bill codified all of that in the state law in case stuff started to really break down at the federal level. Under the LePage administration, Maine opted to use the federal network infrastructure rather than build and control its own insurance marketplaces. This bill, even though its administration is still pretty dependent on certain aspects of the ACA being in place on the federal level, the state of Maine is now participating a bit more in the process. Uh, and so the bill dealing with pre-existing conditions, that one uh, they got through in 2019. And then this bill that uh, basically sort of copycatted uh, Obamacare into a state uh, into a state policy passed uh, just this past March in 2020. Now, back in March of 2019, she actually did propose a bill of her own of what was probably her most ambitious endeavor as a legislator. She proposed a statewide family and medical leave program. An act to create family and medical leave benefits was presented by Gideon to the legislature in March of 2019. And it's been stuck in committee ever since. And any sort of discussion or decision has been pushed back and delayed a number of times at this point. Now, this bill is pretty involved. It's about 15 pages long, so there's a lot to it. But the rundown is that this program will provide a weekly benefit equal to a portion of an employee's regular pay if that employee had to take time off for medical reasons or to care for a family member with medical issues. The bill also allows new parents, including adoptive and foster parents, to take, if I'm reading this correctly, up to a year's worth of weekly benefits. And the bill specifically states that this is for the purpose of having the parents bond with the child. Otherwise, for medical leave, it's 12 weeks of benefits per year, and there's actually some specific guidelines around service members that provide up to 20, 20 weeks per year. And that cap only applies for medical leave. If it's for the family leave, what was used for medical leave doesn't count against what a person would get if they stayed home with a new child. Now, how does Gideon expect to pay for this? The legislation proposes a tax of not more than 0.55% of every main employee making over $12,500 per year. This new tax would go directly into a state-controlled fund for the specific purposes of distributing family and medical leave benefits to qualifying employees. Now, the law specifically says up to 0.55%. So technically, it just can't be more than that. It's entirely possible that if this bill were to pass, the tax to fund it might be less than 0.55%. Uh, and the people making less than 12500 they can still qualify for benefits. They're just exempt from paying a tax to fund the program. Uh, another one she supported as Speaker of the House that passed put a $100 cap on insulin medication. Uh, she also provided testimony in support of an act to protect consumers from surprise emergency medical bills. Uh, 
Uh, this one had to do with getting charges from out-of-network services during an emergency room visit. In her testimony, she wrote, and I quote, A recent study shows that one in five inpatient emergency department cases may lead to a surprise bill. These bills can negatively affect all the players in the healthcare system. When insurance companies are not obligated to pay their fair share, patients may be left with exorbitant bills for the treatment they receive. And emergency doctors who are required to treat and stabilize all patients regardless of their insurance coverage may not be compensated for their life-saving care in a way that allows them to continue operating, especially in rural and underserved parts of our state. The legislation seeks to solve these problems in a few ways, the most important of which is ensuring patients are taken out of the middle of billing disputes between insurers and providers and held harmless. That means in an emergency room where patients often lack the ability to meaningfully choose their provider, they will only be liable for the charges for which they would have been responsible had they received care from an in-network provider. And this one got Mills' signature back in March of this year, so this was actually one of the few things that got done before the uh, shutdown. Okay, let's turn to some public safety stuff. One of the bills that she sponsored and was passed was an act to require the Secretary of State to inform commercial drivers about human trafficking prevention. This bill was passed back in 2017, and this one was actually pretty cut and dry. Anytime a commercial driver was getting their license or were getting it renewed, they would be given information on basically how to recognize human trafficking situations, along with a phone number for a human trafficking hotline. In her testimony to support the bill, she cited a 2015 study showing that Maine has between 200 and 300 human trafficking cases annually. She went on to describe truckers as the eyes and ears of our nation's highways and are an invaluable resource in the fight against human traffickers using our transportation systems. Now, like I said, all this bill does is provide commercial drivers with information but I suspect she would have wanted this bill to do more than just provide a pamphlet with a hotline number. In her testimony, uh, she also talked about a 27-minute video and multiple-choice test developed by a Truckers Against Trafficking group. Apparently, Ohio has already incorporated it into its commercial driving license test. Another bill she co-sponsored and provided testimony for in 2019 was LD 1312 called an act regarding access to firearms by extremely dangerous and suicidal individuals. This one set up a whole new category of protection order called extreme risk protection. And this bill was an attempt to set up a procedure in which if a cop, family, or household member thought someone was a danger to themselves or others, they can go to a court and petition to have the court order that person to surrender their guns to the local police department. And the bill specifically mentions due process here, so it's not automatic. The person would have an opportunity to argue in court why they think they shouldn't have to surrender their guns to the local police. But if the judge agrees with the petitioner, then the order would be to have the person's guns temporarily taken away for 14 days. And then, after those 14 days, the court could then decide to extend it or not, and if they decided to extend it, they'd be able to extend it for up to a year. In her testimony to support the bill, Gideon stated, quote, 
I have no argument with the right to bear arms as specified in our Constitution, but I will also tell you that, in a choice between the safety of our children and the unfettered ability of any person, no matter how dangerous, to obtain and use firearms to potentially inflict untold harm, I will choose my child, our children, first. Every time you ask me, I will choose the lives of our children first. Every time. That's why this red flag legislation makes sense. It would allow police officers or family members to ask a court with full rights to due process for the individual intact to issue a community protection order for someone who is at immediate risk of harming themselves or others. This order would temporarily separate guns from the person who might use them to inflict harm, something we've tragically failed to do time and again. End quote. Right, so as you may imagine, this one got some pushback. I think something like over 220 people provided testimony to the Judiciary Committee, and the Judiciary Committee split three ways on what recommendation to make to the legislature. A few recommended passing it, but with some amendments. A few more didn't want to pass it at all, and one person, Sheena Bellows, whom some may remember, I'm pretty sure she ran for a House seat a few years back, she wanted to pass it, but with an amendment that only she alone agreed with. So yeah, this one made it to a legislative vote in spring of 2019, and then failed comfortably in both House and Senate. Oh, and I just realized, there was another health care bill she supported that I wanted to touch on. She sponsored LD 1261, an act to authorize certain healthcare professionals to perform abortions. Its purpose was to provide better access to abortion services in rural Maine. It expanded the definition of healthcare professionals so that both physician assistants and skilled registered nurses, so not just licensed physicians, would be allowed to provide abortion services. And in her testimony for that one, the justification she gave was basically twofold. First, she argued that these types of medical professionals are already allowed under Maine law to provide other types of procedures. She specifically mentions miscarriage treatment, which is apparently a similar procedure depending on how far along the pregnancy is. According to Gideon, the only reason they weren't allowed to provide abortion services in Maine currently was because of a 1979 law that barred anyone but registered physicians from providing abortion services. Gideon argued that back then the purpose was to keep back alley abortions from occurring, and that now it makes sense to extend the permission to include physician assistants and skilled registered nurses. She also argued that because there are so few public options for abortion services in Maine, some patients may end up driving six hours round trip. Gideon argued that expanding the definition of healthcare professional would help women in rural Maine have better access to safe abortion services. And the legislative vote was actually somewhat close. There was clearly some opposition, but ultimately it passed and became law. Another one she's responsible for is Maine's new automatic voter registration system. This one passed in spring of 2019 as well, and what this bill does is Anytime anyone has an interaction with the Bureau of Motor Vehicles, whether it's to get their license, uh, an ID card, or to get either of those renewed, that person will be automatically added to the state's new voter registration system. And so they've set it up so that the information is sent along to the local municipality to be updated. So the local municipality is still responsible for keeping the voter rolls that are used on voting days, 
but sort of as a backup, the state is now keeping a statewide role that, at least for now, cannot legally be used in lieu of a municipality voter role. One of the reasons she cites is that it will help municipalities keep their voting rolls clean, something that is required by federal law but can often end up getting neglected. The bill also requires a bunch of data be collected over the next few years to see how it all works out. Alright, one more and we'll wrap this up. The last thing we'll cover today is a joint resolution sponsored by Gideon. The resolution, which was adopted by both Maine, House, and Senate, reads, A joint resolution to reaffirm friendship between Maine and Taiwan, to enhance bilateral relations, and to support Taiwan in the international community. Gideon cites strong economic ties with Taiwan, stating some $95 million in exports to Taiwan from Maine alone. Now for me, this is an interesting one because for the past several years leading up to this resolution, which would have been under the LePage administration, Maine, especially our commercial fishing markets, had made deliberate inroads into China. And well, frankly, it's been observed that if you want to do business with China, openly and publicly supporting Taiwan is not the best way to go about doing that. In fact, it will most likely cost you access to Chinese markets. Now, this resolution was passed in the spring of 2018, so LePage was still governor and the Chinese trade war was already negatively affecting parts of Maine's economy, so it's unclear how much, if at all, this sort of resolution could have negatively affected Maine's access to Chinese markets at that point anyway. Or, maybe it was a deliberate legislative pivot away from China and toward Taiwan as the trade war dragged on. But even a resolution as benign as the one Gideon sponsored would only provoke further retaliation. Okay, I guess that's enough for now. I'm not sure how many people will actually ever hear or listen to this, but if you did, I hope you learned something, and I hope you check out the show again. I'm hoping to have another one up soon, which means I'm actively working on it. Alright, I guess that's it. Oh yeah, if you can't wait for the next episode, go check out the website, themainpolis.com. Uh, I've got links there so you can do your own legislative bill search or maybe look up your own state senator. Uh, there's also some original content I've written as well and a bunch of other resources too. Okay, that's it. Thanks for listening.